Thank you so much for making it so early. Uh, I'm really amazed by how many people is here already. I really thought that everyone would be checking out still and we'll have a couple of people at this time. So this is very impressive. Thank you very much. Um, it's also great to see lots of young people. Um, early stages of the career is a good time to be thinking of this. So I'm very happy to see that as well. Um, so my name is Marcia Grand Ortega. I work for Catholic Medical Mission Board, uh, CMMB. There's some brochures on the table right next to that door and also there's a sign-up sheet if you want to leave your names or want more information. I also have some business cards if you want to um, uh, get the presentation or anything. So the idea for this session is um, to share in some way the journey that we went through. I joined this organization four years ago. Um, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm a public health professional, and I didn't graduate that long ago either. Um, so this was my first job in global health uh, as program manager for um, a program from a very long-standing organization that has been deploying volunteers for many, many years, actually a century. <laughs> um, and although I wasn't an expert and I didn't have a lot of experience in managing volunteer programs or managing programs, um, I kind of took it on and um, I really did my homework. So pretty much since day one, I started doing the research, reading the literature. And, and I think partly what I'm trying to share here is what I learned in that journey and how I applied this into a program um, to try to work towards making sure that our volunteers are impactful, that the work that they do is sustainable and continues in time, um, and that we're doing this responsibly. So hopefully this will help you all as well. So I will start with a quote from a fellow Argentinian um, and an inspiration of mine. Service is the sign of true love. Those who love know how to serve others. We learn this especially in the family, where we become servants out of love for one another. In the heart of the family, no one is rejected. All have the same value. Pope Francis. And as you know, in Argentinian and Latin culture, family is very central. Um, and I think in the work that we do as well, and, and the life of a missionary as well, we, we all become part of the same family. So I hope you see how this is, um, this is coming from that framework. Um, so the idea for this session is to start by discussing the general uh, landscape uh, where we're serving internationally, what other groups are doing this type of work, and how they do it, and what's the discussions around it, uh, and also think of the role of, that international volunteers can have within the broader shortages in, in uh, health workers uh, around the world. Um, we will also review some of the multi-sectoral discussions in terms of responsible international volunteer service and guidelines. And um, I will set up a list of all of the different actions that uh, a program could take uh, to incorporate these guidelines into their work. And um, if we have the time, we'll discuss what the constraints are for, for small programs. That, that's, that's always a challenge. Um, so we will start with a comic um, that I found, and it's very close to my heart because it reminds me of my previous uh, work in Indigenous Australians uh, health and program evaluation. So it says, I'm sorry, the, the text is not very good. Um, you can't build a hat. You don't know how to find edible roots, and you know nothing about predicting the weather. In other words, you would do terribly in our IQ test. <laughs> and I think this is great to highlight um, the danger of the superior way and um, just thinking of how relative, relative things are um, and how sometimes we can make uninformed assumptions and, and base our decisions on that. 
Um, so I will, in the next few slides, I will share with you a few resources that I would really recommend you to have a look at if you're planning to coordinate. Um, actually, sorry, before we get, uh, we get to this, um, could I get a hands up to get a sense of who's in the room? So how many of you are clinical professionals, doctors, nurses? Great. Um, how many of you are program managers or coordinators or team leaders? Good. <laughs> um, public health students or graduates? Right, so we have a bit of a mix. That's good. Thank you. Um, so these are some of the resources that I would recommend for you to have a look at. Um, if you're interested in getting the slides, I'm happy to share them. I put links everywhere and references everywhere so you can find the resources that I'm talking about. And the idea is to, to, to recommend you what to read and to kind of guide you through different, um, different resources that were published uh, recently. So this first one uh, gives you a sense of the fact that in the last few decades there's been so many medical volunteers going from high-income countries um, to a southern hemisphere hoping to tackle the major health inequities. Um, and this has grown into a billion <laughs> industry, and there's uh, over 1.6 million people who are volunteering. Um, despite this, what we notice and a lot, what a lot of the literature is, is talking about is the fact that there's not that many guidelines. There's not that many certifications or ways in which we can, uh, principles to follow, and this isn't available to everyone necessarily. So there's been quite a lot of uh, discussion around that. Um, this book, Toxic Charity, is quite interesting because it brings a lot of stories and, and recommendations based on, on true uh, work that has been done on the ground. Um, and here in the next slide, it's, it's interesting because social media has helped um, to really bring attention to some issues that weren't discussed so broadly before, such as um, the concept of white saviors, um, the kind of this, um, I don't know, humanitarian being something that, being humanitarian um, as something that you want to show off on. So there's like humanitarians of Tinder, uh, there's an Instagram that is the Savior Barbie that is actually quite, quite funny. Um, there's been a lot of attention brought um, to, to these issues uh, due to a doctor that was recently um, kind of persecuted and, and I think still is, um, that was doing some work and not being licensed for it and putting lots of, of, of people at risk. And, um, and then actually this page right at the bottom, No White Saviors, it has a resources page that is quite interesting and leads to a lot of these um, websites. And again, the, a lot of that might be criticism that is not so pleasant to, to hear, and we all um, might be doing some of the things that are listed there, but still there is some learnings uh, from that. Um, there's increasing commentary as well on um, volunteer tourism on the fly-in and fly-out model and whether this is something that, that is sustainable and really has an impact. Um, questioning on the, on the money that is spent on these missions versus how much that money could have done if used on the ground. Um, so I really encourage you to, to read some of these. Um, and mainly the point is, is the fact that some of the guidelines that are being created, even the new guidelines that are being uh, worked on, are being designed by the Global North and not always having an input from the, the kind of the recipients, those who are um, hosting us. So that's why um, it's important to, to think of all of this. Um, but definitely, although there's all of these 
questions around it still were very much needed, <laughs> and still there's a shortage of um, health professionals around the world, and particularly in the countries where, where they're most needed. Um, we, we know that 44 out of 45 um, priority countries, as, as defined by WHO, uh, are below the threshold of 23 doctors and nurses and midwives per um, 10,000 population. Um, those in red are actually countries where we worked, uh, where CMMB works. Uh, but definitely there's a huge need, and these are mainly the countries where we're all uh, going to serve. So uh, we, we do have a role. Uh, we just have to make sure that, that what we do, we do it responsibly, and that we're really investing in education, in training, in, in empowering the countries. Um, so what can we do as program managers to make sure that we uh, are doing this work responsibly and sustainably? So what I'm going to do today, and the idea, is to take you through the process that we went through um, the last four years, we're a relatively small-sized organization. Um, I am pretty sure that um, our numbers, the volunteers that we deploy a year, is, is quite insignificant in comparison with a lot of the organizations presenting here and participating here. Um, but we're a program with global reach, and the idea is to use our program as an informative case study and use this as a reflective um, exercise uh, and, and show what we've done in, t in terms of trying to achieve that that responsible service as a, as a model and as a goal. So before we get started, I want to just very briefly tell you a little bit about us to give you some sense of who we are. Um, so as I said, we've been around for a century. We started in 1912 um, with an anesthesiologist, Dr. Flagg, um, actually being touched by loss in his own family and due to that starting to mobilize people to put together supplies and take them to Haiti. So actually the, the volunteer spirit is, is there and that's how we got founded, although the organization became um, broader and the services became broader. So we have Catholic roots and we follow the principles of Catholic social teaching. Um, currently, CHAMS is our signature program, and this program provides a platform to strengthen rural healthcare systems in multifaceted uh, ways and to bring much needed services to families and communities most in need in the last mile. Uh, the volunteer program and the medical donation program both are what we call the, the legacy programs, and they actually work integrated within this signature broader program to, to strengthen the work that we do. Um, and one of the things that makes CHAMS different and that I think has been a platform for um, really uh, working on, on making sure that the volunteer program is, is, is kind of having that, that sustainable impact is the fact that we um, make a commitment with the communities where we work for 15 to 20 years. Um, so we will work with them, and we will work with them until we know that they're self-sufficient. We're now with many of the communities on the fifth, tenth year, um, and we work with women and children in the center, given that our focus is maternal and child health, and um, thinking of them in a holistic way. So not only working particularly in health, but also um, making sure that we work at the facility to strengthen the health, um, the health system, at the community, working with the families directly to educate them on, um, on kind of pre- um, and postnatal um, and also educating them on how um, to deal with issues with water and sanitation, uh, to create opportunities for um, productive activities and kind of having an income, and we also make donations of medicine. So this also enables having more of that holistic approach and integrated approach uh, to working with um, the staff, the healthcare staff, and with the families that are our beneficiaries. 
And one thing to say is um, we, the, the organization changed quite significantly over time. In the last 10 years, we've really focused our efforts on these communities. And as much as we can, we're putting all of the funding, grant funding, and volunteer resources, human resources, technical expertise, all towards these uh, communities where we work and uh, really towards investing on, on having them grow and strengthen their health system. Um, and for this reason, our main focus is always long-term service, so six months to 12 months, because we really think that that's where you can have the most impactful service. We have, um, though, uh, started working on, on trying to figure out ways in which we can bring specialized professionals for shorter term, because we realize that a lot of people who might have skills that are not available in these countries uh, might only be available for two weeks or six weeks. Um, and although we acknowledge that that might not be the best time frame, um, we're trying to find ways to, to make it work, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So um, this is just to show you very quickly some of the journey that we went through since it started. So one of the first things we did is to turn the program into a more demand-driven program, so focusing on making sure that we're responding to the needs that were identified on the ground, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, turning it into a more sustainable uh, program where the, the impact is, is um, continuous in time and um, we make sure that the, the impact that a volunteer can have is not while they're serving but will, um, will stand for the years uh, following or at least someone else will take on from the work that they did. Um, and more recently we are uh, emphasizing this focus by working more on the educational components so I'll, I'll cover a little bit about that. This is just to, sh you don't have to read it, but um, just to give you a sense of what have we done on that first phase, and this was only that first phase, so the first couple of years, um, some of the ways in which we went from supply-driven to demand-driven was doing a more in-depth analysis of the needs, um, and not so much responding to people applying and wanting to go to a field, but actually making it more deliberate, more intentional, so we know what we, what's needed, and we would go out there seeking for those professionals, making sure that the jobs and that the volunteers do and um, and the, the focus for their work is really skill-based, project-based, so it's very, very focused um, and intentional, as I said, and that we partner with organizations that will help, help us fill that gap. So these are some of, of the resources that we will look at, and these are the main ones, actually. Um, so recently, reflecting on this whole process and also thinking on how to build capacity from my colleagues on the ground so that they better understand um, what informs the volunteer program as it is. Uh, we did an exercise where we went through uh, all of these resources that we've come across recently and draw from them the key learnings and use them to rethink um, our kind of growth process and what's missing, what are the gaps, what else we should be doing to make things better. So we drew from academics and practitioners from many different sectors. So this represents um, education and nursing and clinical education, um, students. So you will see that when some of the quotes that I used, and they might be talking about nurses, doctors, students, because depending on the sector that they're coming from, they might frame it differently, but the message is always the same and it's quite consistent. Um, and the way we will go through this, I've organized it as chronological steps. So let's think of it as if you were to create a program from scratch. So what would be the first thing that you would do and take some of the learnings from that and look at what we did to rethink uh, the work that we're doing right now. So 
We will start by talking about um, how to learn about your context, the context where um, you will be working, and how to identify key needs. So these are the first quotes, um, and you'll see it's a summarized version of the, of the <laughs> reference, because you have them all here at the beginning and at the end. Um, so first, uh, kind of learning is ensuring that identified needs and assets of the community, ensuring that we identify the needs and assets of the community as determined by a wide range of community members, um, and ensuring that they're upheld and prioritized within the program aims and objectives. A host partner that defines the program, including the needs to be addressed and the teaching of volunteers. Um, so this is very key. Uh, we, as I said, it helps a lot the fact that we've been working with these governments, with these communities, with the same program teams on the ground um, for many years now. So they are the ones that will be liaising with Ministry of Health, with the regional offices of health, uh, to understand what the needs are and inform them back to us. Um, we have also teams on the ground, so these uh, teams are country nationals, uh, the leadership is, is national as well, and we also have focal point people that will be the key people managing the program um, and managing volunteers and managing the relationship with host facilities. So this is a very important piece, and these people are obviously full-time employed by us, um, so we're working with them on an ongoing basis to build that, that partnership and to build their, their understanding of what these clinical professionals are coming to do and how to integrate them within their work and how they can make sure that they help them. Um, it's very important to constantly review that facility needs assessment. Um, that is always a challenge, but um, because the, the natural tendency for people is you ask them what they need, and they will say yes to everything. <laughs> and, then, and then I offer them someone that they say yes to, and they're like, oh, I'm not sure about a pharmacist. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it does take some learning and, and a lot of discussion for people to really think through when you're asking for these professionals, for the specialization, how are you going to use them? How, how are they going to help you? Uh, do you really think you have a full-time job for them? Could they be long-term? Is that something? Is this a short-term intervention and they could be there just for a couple of weeks? Um, what trainings they will do? So all of this is, is a process that takes its a long educational process and a lot of discussions. Um, so it's important to start it early and, and to have this inform your objectives and, and your goals. Um, and then when you have a sense of that, you can start building the partnerships here that will help you fill those gaps. So this gives you a sense of what we look for, um, those in the uh, aquamarine color in the teal. Uh, those are kind of our high-priority roles, mainly because our focus is maternal and child health. But the facilities where we work, they need as well other specialists, so we also look for them. Um, but it's important to identify this and to have this as your constant goal and, and what you're working towards. Um, another point that, that it was a learning for me <laughs> um, and, and was kind of quite interesting is realizing that that needs assessment in the early days we were doing it countrywide. We were just trying to get a general sense of what Kenya needs. 
And then we realize that each site is completely different. Each facility is different. What's needed in the community-based work is different from what's needed in the government hospital versus the mission hospital. And in each ward, the level of expertise that they need might be different. Um, so in one hospital, they might be able to have medical residents because they have someone who can supervise them. But in another facility, there's no supervision, so we need someone who's very experienced and can work independently. Um, so this is also a challenge. You really need to get to know the context and, and the facilities where, um, where the, the specialists will be working and, and also what they will need because what we realize is some, they might be asking for a surgeon, but then they haven't yet equipped completely their operating room. So we need to make sure that either we get the supplies and equipment that are needed or that this surgeon that is interested in coming along will help us assess what's needed, um, procure it, bring it along, and then provide the services and provide the training so that the rest of the staff at the facility can support this work. So there's, there was quite a bit of, of work to, the, to do at that early stage, and a lot of these questions I haven't yet been able to answer um, because it requires quite a bit of time to do this in-depth analysis and in-depth assessment. Um, moving forward to defining when, when you have got to a point where you understand what's needed and uh, what you want to bring along, you want to define this and make it part of your values, of your objectives, and your principles, and be very clear and transparent on, on what is informing your work. Um, so as some general learnings, uh, the recommendations are to make sure that we respect um, governance, oh, sorry, governance, legal, and ethical standards in, um, in the countries where we work, and um, also that we follow the, the standards uh, from the U.S. And, and, and based on the licensing from the professionals that we are recruiting for. Um, also that we make sure that the local community members um, are partners in relationship and that they rely and that we rely on the local knowledge in all stages of the process from developing, implementing, and then evaluating the program. Um, so this is key, and I didn't mention it yet, but um, this is an important part. We might be thinking of solutions or interventions um, that we think are great ideas, but then in practice they won't work because there's, um, I don't know, there's local beliefs and that we might not be addressing. Um, so it's important to have that input from um, the local knowledge. And that is all something that only comes over time and when we build relationship and we really give, when we really give space for people to, to think through the interventions that we're proposing and, and think through whether they're feasible and they really will, will work. Um, so our values are respect, love, excellence, and compassion. Um, and our mission, our vision, a world in which every human life is valued and health and dignity are shared by all. And because of this, um, we thought it was really important to define very well the principles for the program. Um, and here you'll see that there's some, you don't need to read it, but there are some of these key points that we've been talking about. Um, and one that is very key to all of this is the equality and reciprocity piece, um, that you will see it in the literature mentioned in, in different ways. Um, mutuality, two-way, learning, um, dual purpose. Um, and the whole point is making sure that this is not a relationship where there's um, a giver and a receiver. This is equals working together. We learn from our local counterparts. We learn about the, their culture, about their context, about their needs, about their beliefs, 
and only within that framework we provide uh, this, this work. Um, and that learning goes both ways. There's a reciprocity in terms of those two clinical professionals working together from two different countries, learning from each other, and, um, and kind of filling the gaps in each other's knowledge. Um, and that symmetry, symmetry is, is very critical. Um, so here we read that the Global Health Nurse promotes an environment in which human rights, dignity, values, customs, and spiritual beliefs of the individual, family, and community are respected. The needs of two or more groups um, are met equally, and an equal partnership is created. And the dual purposes that I was talking about, community and student volunteer outcomes are. So when you're thinking of those objectives, ideally you want to make sure that both the goals from the community and from the visitors are, are being considered. Um, now, as a next stage, obviously, you want to make sure that the work that you're doing will continue. That is not, as we were saying before, kind of fly in, fly out that sometimes happens where we just do the work, leave, and we really have no idea what will happen afterwards and who will follow up on those, on those patients, uh, whether they will continue to take their medicines or not, and whether they will do it in the right way. So there's a few elements to that. Um, one first one that, unfortunately, it's the nature of all the work we do. We need to make sure that the financials are there. Um, in our case, we, we solve that um, partly because we have a larger organization backing the program up. There's unrestricted money that we can tap on, so that helps subsidize some of the cost of sending volunteers to the field, but we also ask for participants to, um, to make a fundraising effort up front and pay for some of the, the costs through that effort. Um, it is very important to have that funding, obviously, because we want to make sure that you will be able to come back and continue the work, um, but also that you compensate those on the ground supporting you um, and hosting the volunteers and, and, and doing the work that is required to make this program happen. Um, you want to make sure that uh, you have the funding to be able to support transportation and housing, um, a safe, a safe housing, safe transportation. I've, I've been questioned in the past for the cost for our mission trips. And I'm like, well, we send you on a four-wheel drive. There is the drivers that we know. It's the company that we know. We will just not use any taxi or any company, any car. Um, we, will, we will make sure that our volunteers are safe and, and they're looked after. And um, the housing obviously will always be, and, and this is the recommendation, that the living standards is equal to the ones, uh, to the living standards of the locals and that the remuneration is also um, uh, kind of equivalent, and we make sure that that's the case. But when it comes to safety, that, that's um, right at the top. So when it comes to transportation, this is a huge cost, actually. Um, and then obviously making sure that you have the translators, the translators who are local and will help you with that cultural translation as well, um, and that you will have the supplies that will allow you to do the work and, and do impactful work. So if you're doing a clinic, also making sure that you will have all of the resources that you need. And if you don't, you might need to make sure that you bring them along or, or, or procure it beforehand. Um, in these, uh, I don't know if I covered that. And I think that's the main thing. We also, um, one key, key area, because we have a medical donation program for us, it's been quite easy to... Um, aligned with the local policies and to the general recommendation for medical donation practices and, and practices around um, bringing equipment and supplies to the countries. But if you don't have a partner organization that you work with, 
to make sure that you align with those policies, make sure that you study them beforehand and, and you review what's the general recommendation. And I'll give you a couple resources for that um, because there's quite a bit that one needs to know uh, and, and can come naive to, to kind of bring along things. And you might buy, pay a huge cost in customs if you come without a good plan and a good sense of, of what you're bringing along. Um, and finally, the, um, in, this, in this section, another important part in terms of what needs to be there, a structure, and what will make this work sustainable and impactful, um, having a team on the ground that will do that management and supervision. Um, so firstly, we want to make sure that um, the global – well, I'll read um, the quotes first. A global health nurse that sustain a collaborative and respectful relationship with coworkers in nursing and other fields. Um, appropriate recruitment, preparation, and supervision of volunteers. Um, so as I, as I was sharing before, it's important to have some key people who will help you all along the process, from the assessment of needs, from informing uh, what's needed, to informing um, what is it that you should, that they expect from that professional that you bring. Uh, so what are the requirements, what's the selection criteria. Um, and ideally you want involvement, involve them in that process. Um, and you also want that same people to be the ones that will receive them, do the orientation, and do the check-ins. So if you have someone for, this is something that I learned over time, <laughs> if you have someone for three months, it's critical to just keep an eye on how they're progressing and, and, and doing check-ins, just being, being informed of how things are going, if there's anything that needs to be adjusted, or there might be key questions that the local staff cannot respond because they don't have that intercultural communication. They don't understand the perspective from this American student who came to work with them. Um, so we need to mediate. So we need to be part of that process remotely, although the people on the ground will be the ones ultimately providing that support and, and, and checking in with our volunteers. Um, something else that I didn't mention before, but I think it's important as well, is um, being aware of the licensing requirements as well and making sure that uh, you don't have anyone working outside the scope of their, their licensing. And in many countries there are uh, quite, um, quite complex processes and quite pricey in some cases uh, processes that need to be followed to get the local licensing or the local work permits. So make sure that uh, people that you bring along, that you're well informed on, on what's required for them to work in those countries, and also that they are aware that they're not um, expected to work outside the, the scope of, of their training and experience. Uh, so that's another key piece, and that's something that we also need to work with our colleagues on the ground to have them understand, because they might not understand what um, I don't know, physician assistant does or a nurse midwife um, and they might expect more from you just because you're the white doctor who came along and they might not be differentiating between one role and the other. So it's important to educate them on what they can expect from you as well. Um, so I think I'll stop there. Is there any questions? Because there's a lot of information. So if there's anything that I can respond to? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. So the question was, um, when you do that needs assessment, uh, how do you deal with a need that you observe but the community hasn't identified? Um, that is a huge challenge. And even now, I've, I've, 
I feel like the best way to address it is by building those relationships and by building that mutual understanding, by doing that constant capacity building. We're learning about them, they're learning about us, and we're all working together to solve the challenges. Um, but sometimes dealing with that, I've, I've learned over time, can only be done by sitting down at a table and working together, having a workshop where we're all brainstorming on how we can tackle these challenges, identifying the key priorities and then working together and thinking how to, how to address them. When you go with a survey and you try to do it in an hour and then leave, either they will tell you that they need everything in the survey <laughs> or they might not um, think on the, at, that moment, at that given moment when you're having that discussion about those specific needs and you will leave thinking that that's not a need. Um, they might not understand what you can bring. That's something else that I've noticed. Sometimes they are just, they don't have a, they might not have, and it makes sense. In the same way, we don't have a good understanding of their levels of training and what um, a nurse can do and how, how they were educated, how their, their health system and, and education system works. They might not know it about us either. So they might not know what you can bring um, and, and what your experience gives you that they might not have available on the ground. So again, it's that mutual education and working together to address it. And it's a constant kind of an ongoing work, <laughs> an ongoing challenge in some way. So the question is, um, I'm bringing a lot of examples from communities that we've been working with for a while. How do you go about um, building a program when you, don't, you haven't identified the community that you will work with yet and, and defining what's the community? Uh, from our experience, and I think that might be the best way to go about it, it's a combination. We decided on these communities and we identified these communities because we had been working with many different organizations, partnering with many groups, supporting many volunteers around the world, and somehow these were the areas where there was a combination of a needs assessment that identified a large need, a catchment area where there was a lot of opportunity and large enough at catchment area so you can actually have an impact and, and really by working in one facility and in that whole system you can really make a difference. But also having the local partnerships already that you can tap on. So it's something that we built over um, a long time. I think it, it would be hard if you're just starting from scratch, I guess getting started by working with some organizations and starting to build those relationships um, without going in with the goal of creating this big initiative, but actually just getting started <laughs> with small goals and, and filling in gaps here and there and that way starting to build your, your relationships, your networks, until at some point you'll realize that you have enough support, enough contacts, enough of a structure to, to build from. Um, and there is a need in that community, and you're being asked for it. In some ways, kind of also um, seeing that, that you're being invited, uh, and that's, that's very key. Um, yes? Sorry? <laughs> Ojalá. <laughs> I wish, and I have coffee there. Yes. Um, so the question is, where, um, 
we pull volunteers from and our financial structure. So in terms of where, actually, we're going to cover that uh, briefly, so I think I'll just wait until we get to the slide. And financial structure, I'm not covering that because that has to do more with our kind of broader organizational work. Um, a lot of our funding comes from many different sources, um, multilateral grants. Um, we had quite a bit of USAID funding in the past. I think it's, it's reduced a little bit now. There's also um, corporations, uh, private, private not so much. The volunteer program taps on our broader and restricted. Um, much of what I mentioned is restricted, so there's always that challenge of having to match the funding that goes towards specific goals that, that you were funded for for a short period of time and bring that together with the funding that is not allocated to a specific initiative and using all of that for the goals and for aligning with the signature program that we're creating. But it's not easy. <laughs> my question is, I'm a volunteer. Oh, as a volunteer. You cover 50% of my cost while I'm serving on site, or is there... So we cover around... Um, Two to three thirds. <laughs> two to yeah, two to three thirds. So around half, depending on the length of service. So for a volunteer serving between six months to a year, we ask for five thousand dollars a fundraising goal, um, and on average, the cost for a volunteer to be in the field for around a year is around ten thousand, because we cover flights, transportation, housing. We provide a stipend for volunteers to use us. Uh, for their daily expenses, food, and, and kind of weekend expenses, um, and we provide for insurance. So to cover all of that, it's around 10,000 average uh, for 12 months. So, so yeah, we, we subsidize significantly in the end. Um, still, there's a significant effort from our applicants up front in terms of fundraising. What we do is we train them on how to fundraise them, how to tap on their networks. We do a one-on-one -on -one session where we talk about what networks they have and what they think they could do to fundraise. And, and generally, they're more successful than they would expect. People who have never fundraised before, they do well. Um, and some people who have struggled, we always find ways around for them to support the work that we do um, in some alternative ways if they couldn't achieve their goals. So we're slightly flexible with that. Um, our model as well in terms of funding, I didn't cover it, but something that we've made the decision um, uh, on is for long-term service, because we know that there's such a huge benefit from having a volunteer on the ground for 6 to 12 months, we subsidize heavily. When it comes to short-term, uh, so missions for a week, couple of weeks, it's full cost recovery. So we expect the volunteer to pay all of their expenses. And that is generally um, around $2,000 for Haiti for one week and three, three and a half for two weeks in Zambia, Kenya, let's say, just to give you broad numbers to have a sense, so you have a sense of how much it costs. And, and that is literally covering our costs. Um, with students, we've done kind of that upfront, providing the budget and then reviewing it. And, and generally, we're quite in line with that. And some of these countries is quite expensive, the transportation, I, I have to say. And, and the housing as well, because they've become touristic places as well. So some of the housing is as expensive as it would be to, to stay uh, while you're on holidays going to a game park. <laughs> um, okay, I'll move on because we have a few more, so I'll try to go a bit quicker. Um, so next stage when uh, it comes to recruitment, and, and I'll answer to your question, um, just to summarize it in short, 
we want to make sure that we're supporting, we're responding um, to what was identified as a need. Um, so it's it's a different model from kind of bringing on anyone who, who offers to, to, to serve. Um, but also we want to make sure that we follow a similar process to what locally they will follow when doing their own recruitment. So in the same way you would do it in the U.S. and in the same way they would do it when recruiting for healthcare staff for um, the local hospital, we will go through interview process, background checks, asking for references, and we will um, just do the full due diligence. In our case, we look for people who um, have at least one year of experience on um, positions similar to the one that they will do in the field. And this is because we want to make sure that you're not, a, as an applicant, that you're not a burden on our staff on the ground, that you're actually bringing uh, value. And we've noticed that when there is um, um, shortage of staff, someone younger might be great for them and might really be filling a gap, and it's very much needed um, skills and resources. Um, when they are a little bit better staffed or they're under a lot of pressure, sometimes they ask for someone who's uh, experienced enough so that they will not have to answer any questions and they will actually bring that kind of volume of work that they need and the confidence that they need. So this may vary from one program to the other, um, but we really try to respond uh, to what they're going through at that given time. And, and sometimes um, their selection criteria differs based on their needs. Uh, we have one stage which is getting interviewed by our country programs uh, teams and ideally by the person who will supervise this candidate in the future. And we find that this is really critical because this is the way they really engage uh, with the candidate. They really get to understand what the candidate is after. Um, and they really think through whether you will fit in and you will be fully utilized as, as it should be. Um, so we find that this stage is, is really critical. And there's a long process for this that I won't go through, but, but yeah, as I was saying, that following that full due diligence and involving our country offices, involving our country colleagues in the process is, is really a key piece. And we're currently at a stage where we're learning how to actually bring from them the input that they need, that we need, so that we can define the job description uh, very early on before the, the volunteer arrives and um, define a job description that is really tailored to the needs in the program at that given time um, and to where they will be serving. And this is not easy because they tend to be busy. The communication is not always um, that easy. Um, and I think there's a lot of that mutual education on, on how um, the education levels reflect on how someone will uh, will work when on the ground, um, and that's a key piece because if they don't understand well what, what you're trained to do, they might not be able to help us to put together a job description, and they might have more of this attitude of like, well, when they come, we will figure it out. No, we actually want to figure it out before and, and have people be well prepared for what they will encounter when they arrive. Um, and actually, I realized that I think I got rid of the slide <laughs> that, that included our partners. I don't know, I don't know where it is. Um, but mainly we source from, um, we partner with universities, uh, we partner with health systems as well. But if I have to be really honest, long-term volunteers, I think they only, they only come through. It's people who are really deliberately looking for a Catholic organization with focus in maternal and child health, with a holistic approach, long-term service opportunities, um, and word of mouth. Uh, it's in the end, we do a lot, and 
uh, we speak in different places, we exhibit, we do different things, but what actually brings the right candidates is generally uh, just word of mouth or that they actually did the work and they found that through Google or through Catholic Volunteer Network, um, through different uh, associations where we are listed but it's not so much through those partnerships. The partnerships help us with a lot of the short term. So through the partnerships, we get medical residents, we get student practicums, um, and they do great work, but it's very project-focused work, and it's not as, I don't think it has the sustainable impact that the long-term service has. It's a huge difference in terms of how much uh, someone who's there for six months to 12 months can do versus three weeks or six weeks. Do you see that any, any chance of this, when a student goes, experiences that, then they become professionals, do you see any recurring service? Yes, so the question was um, if we see any recurring service or comebacks. Um, and yes, we do. We, we've had, recently we had a nurse who served in Peru and came back. Um, and it's amazing when they come back. It's, it's happened a few times. Um, generally, they struggle to leave. They try to extend towards the end. And if they committed to six months and they, and they were offered the 12 months possibility, they regret not choosing it. And if they can, they, they extend it. And we have people coming back, but that's another factor. Generally, people will, will come to us for long-term service because it's a particular moment in their life. We have a lot of people who are, like, graduated, have some experience, I have a partner, but I'm not having kids yet, so that's the moment. <laughs> or we have people at the end, uh, pre-retirement, so at the end of their working career, um, or students who just graduated. We had some students who worked, um, oh, we're running out of time, um, who worked in our office in New York in headquarters, and that was a great way to get a good understanding of the programs and the technical aspects, and then went to the field, and that improved their kind of uh, learning process. They accelerated it so much. So that's also, a, we notice a really good way to, to orient people. Um, so that was the next section, and it has to do with orientation, and I'm sure all of you are aware of how important this part is. Um, I find that it's the most challenging part in terms of making sure that we provide um, to applicants with enough tools so that they're well prepared for what they will um, go through. And I notice as well that the more you prepare someone before they arrive, the quicker that adjustment process will be. Um, it, if I have to be really honest, long term is the best. Sometimes we have volunteers telling us it's around three months, Mark, that they actually feel like they understand the job, they know the people, they build the relationships, they trust them, and they can do the job and really make a contribution. It's around six months that they become very confident. Um, so short term is hard because training someone in like three, four hours on a phone call before they go to a field for a week and providing all of the understanding about the health system, the culture, um, the, the expectations, the needs, the program, it's, it's really, really challenging. We have, um, I won't cover this because we're running out of time, um, we have a program that goes for three days for long term and still I feel like it's a lot, it's very condensed and three days, it's a huge commitment for people but at the same time it's very little when it comes to learning as much as you need to learn before you go work in this country. And ideally, you would want to learn the language as well, but we cannot even get to the point of providing language training. Um, uh, so there's a lot that you really need to prepare. And what we do is we give them a lot of resources. So um, we have this training for three days, and in this training, they get lots of 
uh, links and, and different documents that they can read, and we prepare them from the moment that they get accepted until the moment they leave. So also we try to give in small pieces the information, so we don't want to have someone arriving to the orientation and realizing that South Sudan is a dangerous place and that they want to go somewhere else when they, they already have people in South Sudan waiting for them. So we want to make sure that, that we provide all of the information so that people make informed decisions on where they will serve um, and, that they and, and to encourage them to educate themselves on how to prepare, prepare themselves for the trip because there's a lot that is on the, on the candidate, on the volunteer. And then finally, and very important, is evaluating the work that you're doing. Uh, monitoring and evaluation is a key piece, and actually these days is monitoring and evaluation and learning. So the learning part is the one that we're trying to figure out. We have great systems for um, getting monthly numbers on the work that the volunteers are doing, doing an end-of-service report where we receive recommendations for program development, um, and we have a lot of kind of opportunities for qualitative uh, storytelling. But then it's important to use that information and be able to have those stages of checking in and getting feedback and learning and building the program based on those learnings, um, which is also a, a key piece. And it's quite time consuming, uh, but it's important to do it and to document it so that program keeps building up. So it gives you a sense of what we evaluate. Um, on a monthly basis, we track uh, how many people receive services from our volunteers, how many births, um, how many health workers were trained, how many people were reached through outreach visits, uh, through community-based work, um, and how many um, projects they supported in terms of, of health for public health professionals. There's a lot more that we could be tracking, but this is a starting point. Um, we realize now that there's quite a few more layers that we would want to have information on, um, so we're trying to build ways to do that. And there's always a challenge with kind of closing the loop, making sure that the information that we get from these volunteers will go back to our program managers on the ground, will come back to our technical teams here, because there's a lot to learn from the work that they do, uh, but sometimes I'm the only one who will hear it or a colleague of mine in the volunteer program who interviewed them. And then it needs to be shared across with all of the right people so that people can act. Um, volunteers really bring a great um, insight onto opportunities that we might be missing. And again, that has to do with they might not know what, what we could be doing. They might not know what to ask for. They might not know that that one, um, I don't know, piece of equipment that here is only 500 bucks and any of our donors would be happy to support purchasing needs to be purchased and will make a huge difference. If they don't tell us timely, we might not be able to bring that donor to, to, to or we might not be able to purchase it and send it. So the closing that loop of information is something that volunteers help a lot with. Um, but obviously we need to have the systems for it, and there's no great systems, I have to admit, for that. Um, so that's it for me. Uh, I just have a video to wrap up the session. Uh, there is around three minutes, but before we look at it, I want to see if there's any other questions that I can respond. And as I said, I'm happy to share uh, these so that you get the links and, and the resources, if you'd like. I, I was finding out how you get the metrics to measure, is, is there a particular format? We have a survey, a monkey survey. Sorry, the question was um, for the recording, uh, how to get those metrics and what's the format. Uh, so we have a, a 
survey monkey system, so we pretty much, yes, yeah, send them a link and they complete it on that so link. Yes, they have access to, to internet, yeah. yeah. Um, and if they have any issues with internet, we also have like a PDF form or Word format for it. And then we do calls on an ongoing basis. We do a call at the end of the service. We do debriefs when they come back as well. Yeah, so the question was if the survey is only for the volunteers so that same information is gathered from the community. Um, so the hospitals, they always have um, statistics uh, kind of section with a couple people working there. So there's someone, epidemiologist, there's always someone tracking their patient numbers and, and reporting on that. So we actually can get hold of that information, and then what we do is we triangulate that information from the facility or from our program managers who are visiting the, the community, we triangulate that with what the volunteers provide. So actually, the volunteers' information ends up being another form of, of verification for the data that we get from the facility, because we also ask them about the general numbers that they've observed. Um, so that way, it's kind of one more source of, of information. But we do access that information from other channels as well. Also, generally, something that I forgot to mention, uh, we work jointly with Ministry of Health and regional offices, and you can also access that information from those offices. It might take longer, but <laughs> you can access those numbers as well. Any other questions? So I'll show you one final video that I think it um, summarizes really well a lot of what we've talked about. And then again, it's one more um, resource that I'd love for you to check, Catholic Health Association. They have amazing resources. They've done lots of research on some of their members who do short-term missions. There's great recommendations. They're involved in a lot of these discussions on guidelines as well. And they recently put up um, a few videos that is like a very quick and easy to follow training for short-term missions that I recommend you that, that you check out. There's also some PDFs. There's a um, reflection guide um, that pretty much takes you through the whole discernment process and pre-deployment in the field, and it has kind of journal, lots of, um, lots of kind of spiritual guidance. Uh, so I recommend you to download that and, and use it in, in your service as well. Trimmed. The 
higher branches would not be reached by the local workers who were given no ladders of their own. So the fruit grew, but withered and died on the tree. Some of the trees were uprooted and replanted in another part of the field that looked better, but that local workers knew often had terrible windstorms. So the fruit grew, but was blown off before it ripened. But some of the trees remained in the part of the field recommended by the local workers, had an irrigation system built with local materials and were trimmed in a way that the workers could still access all the branches long after the volunteers returned home. These trees bore fruit a hundredfold, and the community had more to eat than ever before. And he said, let anyone with ears to hear listen. Then those closest to him asked what this parable meant. He said, to you has been given the secret of curing the sick. The volunteers are well-intentioned medical professionals. The orchard is the community where they volunteer or send supplies. The trees that were watered for a while but were left to dry out are the patients who were given short-term fixes to long-term problems. It seems better to give the medication or donate whatever supplies are available, but sometimes something is not better than nothing. The trees that had fruit wither and die on the high branches because the local workers had no ladders. These are the patients who had complications arise after the volunteers left. The volunteers get the praise for the good, and the local health workers get blamed for what goes wrong after they leave. The trees that were replanted in a seemingly promising but ultimately devastating part of the field suffer because the volunteers failed to recognize the local workers no vital information about their own communities. Good intentions are not enough when people's lives are at stake. But as for the trees that remained in place, were irrigated properly and could be tended by local workers, these are the patients whose health improved and remained strong for years to come. The volunteers used their expertise to do great work, but they respected the unique knowledge of local workers, they donated supplies that were useful, they provided care with the long term in mind, and they built capacity by ensuring local health workers were strengthened and not undermined by their work. A hundredfold bounty is just the beginning. There is good work to be done, and with God, all things are possible. Well, thank you very much to everyone. I'm sorry that we're like right at the end <laughs> of our time. Um, if you have any questions, I'll be here. Actually, you have a lot of different brochures that you can take, and you can leave your name, email, if you'd like for me to send you anything or if you'd like to participate from our programs. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today morning. Thank you.